the, the message we send to kids sometimes who come from poor communities is that if you work hard, you'll be lucky and get to escape. Well, think about that for a moment. Not everybody wants to escape their family or they escape their community. What about, right? what about this idea? Change the proposition. What about we say, work hard, get an education, and go back and help your family, help your community to get better, to get stronger. Be a talented person who comes back rather than who escapes. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. We are back this week with a great interview. We are still looking at why inclusive practices or student-centered practices or the art of not excluding anyone in the classroom is so important right now in education. And we're gonna to talk to Dr. Nagura, who is a Dean at the Rossier School of Education at USC. So he trains educators, but he also has expertise in equity and diversity. And he's going to talk to us about some of those outliers, students of racial diversity, students with socioeconomic issues that are challenging them, students with cultural differences. Uh, what is the term I'm looking for? English language learners mm-hmm. is another good one that he's going to talk to us about. Yeah, he's got a lot to say, and I think you'll enjoy it. Let's listen. Okay, so everybody, we are talking to Dr. Pedro Nogueira today, and we're going to go ahead and let him introduce himself. He is a professor at USC, and we'll let him give the details. Pedro Nogueira, I'm actually the dean of the Rossier School of Education at USC. I'm also a professor of sociology of education here at USC. Nice, nice. And, you know, I found you because I was looking at and exploring the World Education Summit that you were on recently and taught a class. And as I went through and did some research on you, I found out that you actually have a lot of expertise in equity and diversity. And so that's something that we definitely are looking to explore with you today as we are looking at inclusion and student-centered practices post-COVID as we're kind of trying to rebuild our education systems across this nation. And one of the areas that I think is really not just a hot topic, but with good reason, is socioeconomic, racial, and cultural diversity and how so many students are kind of getting left in the outskirts. And so that's something that we really wanted to talk with you about today. I'm happy to talk about that. Awesome. So we started out this season because we have this overarching theme of inclusion. We started out this season talking with the authors of Inclusive Learning 365, and their whole book is trying to support teachers and finding ways to be inclusive with students. And so one of the things that we were thinking about as we were looking to speak with you was, what are some of the things that you're seeing for students who have either low socioeconomic situations or maybe culturally, Education is very different for them and their families. I know that absenteeism has been really big post-COVID, and I know some families maybe are struggling with feeling like a lot of value with sending their kids to school. What are some of the things you're seeing? Yeah, well, in many schools across the country, disproportionately, kids of color, particularly Black children, are often placed in special ed. And, you know, if special ed was a place that met their learning needs, no one will complain, right? Right. But the first problem is that special ed should never be a place. <laughs> special ed should be a way in which we serve students. That is, we if you have an individualized educational plan that has accurately diagnosed a learning need in a child, then we should all want our kids to get that. And, and it's not about where you put them, but how you serve them. And you right. want to make sure that you're actually meeting their needs. And we only know that we are if we see that child making progress. In yes. too many places, special ed is a place where they're removed from other kids. And the longer they're there, the further behind they fall. They become marginalized in school. And it's because a lot of times the teachers are not trained. But there's also stigma associated with being in special education 
which yeah. compounds the problem, can result in kids who really forget the ability to learn, lose confidence, and, and feel marginalized in school. So I, I think that the push to inclusion is important, but we've got to make sure that we're not losing the need to diagnose what's going on with the child when we see a child either having trouble with learning or having trouble socially with other kids. And that's where I think many schools struggle, that what, what is not uncommon in many schools is to see a child who's fine with one teacher and then a big problem with another teacher. And what's often missing is the relationship and the ability to build a, a trusting relationship with the student that often brings out their ability to work and to learn and to perform in class. Unfortunately, we don't do a good job at training teachers on how to build those supportive relationships with students, especially across differences of race and language and culture. And at your school, at USC, in your school of education, is that something that you're really working with people who are in that program, preparing themselves to be educators? Is that something that you're really looking at with them? We do, because our students who become teachers not only are working with many kids who have learning challenges, they're also working with many kids who are learning English for the first time. And often English learners are confused because people will take their inability to have a, a fluency in English and see that as a form of disability. And so you'll see a disproportionate number of English learners in special education as well. So we want to make sure that our teachers are well-trained so that they can work with kids who are learning English, work with kids who have learning challenges. We have a number of kids these days we call neurodiverse learners who are, you know, just don't learn the same way as other kids. And we want to make sure our teachers can teach kids the way they learn rather than expecting kids to learn the way they teach. Oh, I like how you said that. That's perfect. So I'm an occupational therapist and Shannon is a speech therapist. And we both work in sort of um, the Southwest portion of the country. And you were talking about African-American students that are more highly diagnosed and put onto IEPs or into special ed. We see that a lot with Native American cultures yeah. in this area that it's the percentages are really high. And a lot of times it has a lot to do with some cultural aspects. In many Native cultures, the way that you keep time and schedules and things is very different than in, you know, a a white culture or a structured culture. And so students will miss a lot of school and fall behind, or they just don't have the same level of resources in the areas that they live to have been participating in remote learning over COVID. And so there are a lot of components to that. What are some of the components you're seeing with African-American students that might make them look like they're falling behind or maybe have that higher diagnosis rate? Well, it's interesting because I've done a lot of work in New Mexico and I've seen the- I the, saw the, that. Yeah. I saw that you actually um, do some advisement for our head of PED, our public education department. I have, and also work closely with the governor, Michelle uh, Lujan Grisham. Yes. And what we know about Native American children is that when they get to learn their culture and language, they tend to do way better in school. They do better in life. And it's about that overcoming that estrangement from their identity that too often, that's the history of Native American education, unfortunately, in this country. For African-Americans in this country, what we often see is the, the, the language that the children speak is seen as bad English. And, and so very often teachers spend all their time either not understanding or correcting kids. And what, what, we, what we know about any child who is learning another language, and we want our kids to be able to speak what we might call mainstream American English, because that gives them access to jobs, to college, et cetera. But we know that those, the language they come speaking is the language of home. That's the language mm -hmm. they speak to their grandma, to their relatives. We, they, it's not about giving up that language. It's about providing the ability to code switch so they have more than one language. You know, it's like becoming bilingual, bicultural, in some cases, and that's an added value. And if we think about it that way, that we're not trying to eliminate their culture, but really give them the tools so they can navigate multiple mm -hmm. cultures, then it's uh, an empowering strategy rather than one that, as Jim Cummins says, disables kids. Right. No, I like that. 
Yeah. And that comes super naturally to me as a speech therapist, because we try to identify first language and, you know, and, and build on those skills, but not change any of it. So that, that seems like common sense to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you talk, when you can, when someone who kids trust explains, you know, Lisa Delpit calls the codes of power, right? Mm -hmm. That is like, when you go for a job interview, you speak differently than the way you speak to your friends on the playground. When you go to church, you dress differently than the way you dress going out to play. Kids get that. And, mm-hmm. and it's not seen as a put down on who they are. It's seen as, no, you just have to understand there are different codes, different norms, different language in different settings. And when kids understand that, then they come out of it empowered and better able to navigate different settings. That makes so much sense. And I think whether it's Hispanic cultures, because living in New Mexico, we have a really high population of Hispanic cultures that also have even just power dynamics that happen in the home and the way that you are to address people and behave like all of those things. And I think when we look across different cultural lines nationwide, we are really trying to, I think, as educators work toward becoming more inclusive with understanding and giving students a chance to really honor the cultures that they come from. And that is a big shift from some of the more archaic beliefs and (laughs) practices that have happened in the past. And it makes me hopeful to see that more and more educators are really embracing being more equitable, looking at diversity in a new way. But but it's been slow. It's it's too slow. And and you think about the, especially Native American children, the, the large numbers of kids who, you know, dropped out of school. And I, I, I was in New Mexico a few years ago, and um, I was told by someone there, they said, you know, if it wasn't for Teach for America, we'd have no teachers for the reservations. And I said, well, that's good, but it's not the solution. Right. Because those teachers have no commitment to stay. Yeah. You're going to always have turnover. The only solution to that problem is to train the kids on the reservation to become the teachers, because then they won't see the culture of the kids as being the problem. Rather, they'll see education as being a way to enhance their lives and to strengthen their communities. You know, it sounds simple, but but we've not done that because we haven't believed that that there's talent in those communities. And I would say the same is true in many poor communities across the country, that we think that, you know, the, 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 the message we send to kids sometimes who come from poor communities is that if you work hard, you'll be lucky and get to escape. Well, think about that for a moment. Not everybody wants to escape their family or the escape their community. What about, right? what about this idea? Change the proposition. What about we say, work hard, get an education and go back and help your family, help your community to get better, to get stronger, be a talented person who comes back rather than who escapes. So I think we need to to change the whole way we think about using education as a resource. I think that's brilliant because we do need to have, I almost feel like we need to sort of clean the slate and do something completely different. And the nice thing about some of the things that we've seen from COVID is that we've reached this weird tipping point where this is a really good time to do things completely differently. And we were talking with the authors of Inclusive Learning 365 about how chat GPT has come on and AI has come on, artificial intelligence has come on the scene and into classrooms. And a lot of times teachers, their first reaction is to say, you know, lock it down and keep them from having that. But then we had this conversation about maybe we need to reframe and relook at what we're actually teaching. If we, (laughs) you know, do we need to teach kids the same kind of punctuation and spelling, or can we really be looking at how do you verify information is accurate? And so I think some of those shifts also include looking at cultures and saying, you're not trying to escape it. You're trying to go back and strengthen it and empower it. And I think that is a really beautiful concept that we could really across our nation start to dig into. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I hoped that when schools reopen, that we wouldn't just go back to normal, right? Because <laughs> normal wasn't working for a lot of kids. The status quo was part of the problem. 
And so like you, I said, let's use this as a reset. Let's, let's change things. Let's bring some joy to learning so kids want to be in school. Let's, let's find ways to use te technology to empower kids. You know, yes. we're using technology now to communicate from long distances. You know, there are many people now across the country who have access to a therapist for the first time because they can do it online, right? So yes. technology can be a source of, as a tool that can help us if we train the teachers on how to use it, which a lot of times we don't invest enough in. And, and a lot of times the kids are more adept at it than the teachers are. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think we, you know, I, I really agree that we can really change things in ways, and we should be thinking about uh, so that teachers are empowered, students are empowered to do education differently. It should not be that the longer kids who are in school, the more they hate it, <laughs> the more right. the less they want to read. And, and I think too often when you ask kids, you know, how is school? They often say it's boring. Uh, how often do kids come back and say, what a day. That was so inspiring. I can't wait to go back. Bubbling <laughs> with excitement about what they learned that day. That should be happening a lot more. Oh, I would love that. I would love that. And if we do more student-centered learning and we're not so worried about all the dotting I's and crossing T's, but really figuring out how to get critical thinking and getting kids being creative and working in teams and figuring out how to collaborate. If we could do some of those things, if they were problem solving and felt invigorated, it just, it feels like that could be huge, but where do we start with that? How do we start that? Is it in the way we're training teachers? What do we do about the teachers that are already out in the world, right? Yeah. So what's your thought on so that? It, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I'd spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I, <laughs> I, I think part of the problem has been for too long that we focused on test scores as a way to judge whether or not kids are learning, whether or not schools are doing their job. And what that means is that then teachers think they've got to focus just on raising test scores. Yep. And, you know, I try to remind them, no, what, you, what we got to do is get kids excited about learning. We got to yes. get them engaged. We got to make learning meaningful. We got to show them that knowledge is a source of power and potentially powerful. Because guess what? When all those things happen, grades will improve, test scores will improve, more kids will graduate. Because it, learning ceases to be a chore that you're doing to please someone. Instead, it becomes an extension of who you are as a person and you want more of it. You know, uh, I would say that the best, how do you know someone's a good teacher? It's a lot like a good cook. How do you know someone's a good cook? Because the people who eat it will tell you that was good. I would like some more, right? Same thing happens with a good teacher. If you're a good teacher, the kids will tell you that was good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that leads me to, you know, I was looking at Dr. Hanyshek from Stanford, who he put out a video where he was saying, we need to start really being more, um, providing more reward and support for teachers who are being successful and sort of weeding out teachers that really aren't in it. I mean, they're not really passionate about it. And I have mixed feelings about that. One, I think it would be amazing if all of our teachers were amazing teachers and really connected to it. And I think a lot of teachers want to be, and they're not sure how to do it. And they feel a lot of pressure from their district or their administration to teach to standards because there's going to be testing and that's how they prove that their school is good. You know, I mean, that's, it's such a cycle, right? So how do we, how do we really get in there and shake that up? And I know here in New Mexico, we're making the opportunity for students to go to college for free. And that's huge, but we're still having a hard time getting people in to yeah. go and to, and to learn and to get into these careers. And we're looking at a lot of teachers and administrators leaving this field for one reason or another. I mean, what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. You know, before you think about weeding teachers out, you got to figure out how do you make the job more attractive, right? So that people want to be teachers. We're not yes. doing a good job at that. So mm -hmm. that's looking at pay, looking at benefits, Looking at avoiding burnout, you know, teaching is one of the few professions where we will assign the newest teachers the most difficult job, and then we wonder why they don't want to do it anymore because they're they've they've been burnt out. So we got to change the way we're approaching the training of teachers, the placement of teachers, support for teachers to make it more attractive. And then on top of that, we've got to figure out how do we create schools that are more have a stronger sense of community. They're more humane. You know, arts, when you bring the arts into school, music, kids love that. 
You know, think yeah. about how many kids you've met that have memorized the lyrics to hundreds of songs. Why is it that music is the first thing that gets cut out of school if the budget's <laughs> right, right? Kids still love music. It used to be, not long ago, every kindergarten classroom had a piano and the teacher knew how to play it. And guess what? Pianos are gone now. Why? Kids still love music. <laughs> so we've got to come back to some things that we know make a difference. And we've got to do more to elevate the profession of teaching so that people want to do it. So since I know a little about New Mexico, I would recommend your listeners go visit two schools, the Amy Beale School, which is a charter school in Albuquerque, which has done a lot of great work about making school fun for kids, getting kids engaged in project-based learning, and a very different school called the ACE School. It works with kids who've been kicked out of traditional schools, usually because of poor attendance or they got in trouble, but it's really focused on career and technical training. And those kids, many of those kids for the first time, find themselves in a setting where they're experiencing success, they're becoming competent, they're seeing how what they learn is applied in the real world, and they're more motivated. Motivation is the key. Yes. And we don't think, we, we focus on achievement, we don't focus on motivation, engagement. How do we get kids excited about learning? Well, we, in our conversation with Dr. Andrew Ho from Harvard, he's a psychometrician, which that was a new term for us. We, we, I was really impressed with all the, the ways that he took this very dry information from the NAEP scores and really helped us have a better understanding of some of the things that are going on. But we were talking about that annual standardized testing that is really ingrained in our educational culture right now and how that really came about because families, Americans weren't feeling trusting that what they expected teachers to teach were getting was getting taught in classrooms. And so we said, let's test. And if your scores aren't high enough, then we'll know you're not doing a good enough job. And we were having this conversation about how do we shift that? Because that is not serving us. That is not creating what we intended it to create when we set that system up. It's actually very detrimental. We're spending over a 1.7 billion dollars a couple of years ago was the number nationwide what we're spending on those tests what if we were pouring that back into a classroom what if we were if kids were motivated we wouldn't have to ask if they were learning yeah. so you know so i want to be clear i'm not against assessing kids you have to assess sure. to see do they right. learn right you have to also let parents know how well the kids are doing so parents yes. have some confidence but you know, focusing on the test, it's its like thinking that you're going to lose weight by weighing yourself, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right? So if you get a new scale and all you do is just keep weighing yourself, it doesn't <laughs> usually work. Right. The key is diet and exercise. If we want to see outcomes for kids improve and the tests are meaningful assessments of what kids have learned, you've got to focus on, well, how do we get them interested? How do we get them engaged? How do we make it meaningful so kids will want to learn? We haven't focused on that part at all. We just keep focusing on the assessments. And it's like you focused on the wrong thing. It's like focusing on the scale instead of the diet, the exercise. Well, and I think more and more, especially post-COVID, where we've become a little more tech savvy in education, so many of the curriculums, whether it's iReady or Amplify or whatever, they have assessments built into the curriculum that are done digitally so they can give you analytical data. I'm just wondering, like, is there a way that we could incorporate that and maybe get rid of that, you know, and maybe find key times like the NAEP scores do at fourth, eighth, and 12th grade or other countries will find key moments in the education process to kind of get an evaluation and just see where the kids are standing and, and determine like, how can we best serve them? How do we do that here in the United States? I don't know. I honestly don't have the answer. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately it gets very political because uh, you got to get a change at the federal level and then you got to get the states to adopt the change and be willing to do things differently. You know, I think New Mexico, because New Mexico is almost at the bottom of the uh, of the list in education. So <laughs> I think that gives you some freedom to do things differently. Because yeah. why should you just keep going down the same path and expect yeah. that that's going to change things, right? I think really start to, in New Mexico. My recommendation to the governor and to the state is 
No, focus on bringing joy back to learning, making learning meaningful, preparing kids for life and for work and for college, and do that with parents, right? Instead of have these more antagonistic relationships that we see too often in schools. I was going to say, do you know, I mean, you're kind of giving suggestions for New Mexico, which is great, but do you know any other states or politicians that are working towards any reform? You know, I see changes around the edges. You know, California's doing some things that I like, but okay. we've got a long way to go here too. New York too, you know, I mean, so for example, in New York, uh, where I live for, I'm a New York originally, there are 38 schools that have an exemption from the state exam. And, and those kids do what they call performance-based assessment. They have to produce portfolios of their work where they, that they demonstrate. And, and, and they, so they still get assessed, but they, mm-hmm. they, they want to know, can you write? Can you do research? Like, what have you produced? And what we found is those kids actually do better in college than kids who are doing the more traditional testing. So now they're finally allowing more schools <laughs> to approach assessment in that way. But it's taken a long time. New Hampshire is doing that as well. So we do see some states that are branching out to new areas, but you know we have a long way to go. And colleges, a lot of colleges went test optional over COVID and it seems like they're staying with that. Do you, do you but, think but, they will? Do you think there'll be a change? I think they will, but you got to be, you know, the colleges are playing a game too, because even if they test optional, the kids who take the test are the ones who think they're going to do well. And guess what? They're the ones getting into the best colleges. And so what they, what they should tell the kids and their families is we say test optional, but we like high test scores. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And what is California doing that you're liking? What I like is they have a what they call an equity-based funding formula. So schools that serve a greater number of kids who are disadvantaged, English learners, kids who are homeless, kids in foster care, actually get more resources. And that's, that's a good thing. What they haven't done is give the schools guidance on how to use those resources to help those kids. <laughs> so, that's kind of important. <laughs> really important, because money by itself doesn't solve the problem. Well, and I see more and more schools and districts across the country providing food for families, which I think, you know, always when we're thinking Maslow's laws, uh, Maslow's hierarchy, and making sure we provide for those needs. And some of those things are so important. I think we're realizing post-COVID how significant behavioral and social emotional support is in a way that we hadn't before. I mean, some of those things are really positive, and I don't want to I don't want to downplay some of those good things that are happening, but I think looking at diversity and looking at equity for socioeconomic status and cultural and different racial issues that are coming up and even gender issues that are coming up across the board, like there's a lot on our plate that we got to figure out how to do better. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, so it seems so overwhelming, but suppose we said your goal as an educator is to create a, a humane, nurturing environment for kids, right? Yes. <laughs> That's the goal, right? Because yeah. if kids feel like they belong, if kids feel like they're safe, like they trust the people around them, that's the starting point for learning. Right? Absolutely. You know, but we don't focus on that. You know, we don't tell the, 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 the teachers, you know, you're going to build a learning community where kids can learn together. That's the starting point. You know, I compare, you know, I use the analogy of of cooking. I also compare good schools or classrooms to a garden. You know, if you're the gardener, you know, you got to get the ingredients. You got to get sunlight. You got to get water. You got to get fertilizer. You got to have pest control. And if you do that, nature does it, takes care of it, right? You don't, and same thing is true in schools. You get the conditions right. You're going to get kids learning, right? What are the conditions? Safety, trust, right? <laughs> Stimulation, challenge, right? If we think holistically about kids, about their social needs, their emotional needs, psychological needs, then guess what? Then we're going to be in a better position to meet their academic needs. 
And I think including families and the way that we build relationships between the educators from the administration all the way into the classroom to the paraprofessionals to you know, the janitors to, I mean, every single one of us, if we can really pull families in and give more relationship with them and support them and supporting their kids at home, like we have in the district I'm in, we have a lot of students who can't read, but they also have parents that can't read. And so we can provide them text to speech options so that when they're reading the book, it's highlighting the word as they're going along, then the parent can read along with them. Maybe the parent starts learning to read too. I mean, just think of the dynamic of that. That could be so powerful. So if we can find ways to really engage families and and draw them into this process, because I think they've disconnected from it a little. Well, and the key there is trust. You know, I've never met a parent who says, I want my child to fail. I want my child to end up on the streets. I want my child to live with me for the rest of their lives. You know, <laughs> you know, parents want to see their kids do well. It doesn't mean they know how to help them. But right. if you build a respectful, trusting relationship with parents, especially when kids are small, you're going to get parents who are more willing to do their part in supporting their kids. And all parents can support their kids by getting them to school on time, by just stressing and emphasizing the importance of education. My parents, neither of my parents, grad from high school, and they sent all six of us to college, so. That's amazing. So what would you say the barrier is right now to providing those nurturing environments? And and why do, you, why do we see that not necessarily happening throughout a student's education? I think uh, what we're missing is vision. We don't have a vision of what's possible. We don't have a clear sense of what does good education look like? To some degree, you know, if you think about throughout America, we have private schools for the wealthy and then public schools for everybody else. And, sure. and, and even in the private schools, some of those are, are good. Some of them are not so good, right? And so I, I think, you know, if you travel the world, <laughs> I get to travel and visit other countries, you see, you know, first of all, the inequities are not the same. Right. You go to Canada, you go to New Zealand, you go to, you know, you can't tell, oh, this is a low income school because it's all crappy. No, that's not the way it works. You can't tell who's being served by the quality of the building that it's in. Right. And and that sends a message to kids. Is the school I'm in attractive? Is it clean? Is Mm -hmm. it well built? But then on top of that, you know, is is there care provided in in the design of lessons. Are kids Mm -hmm. being challenged? Are kids being encouraged to take risk? You know, risk around, you know, so for example, you can't learn in an environment where you're afraid to make mistakes. Mistakes are part of learning. Well, you want, so that means you gotta take some risk with learning. Well, that's how people learn things. And Mm -hmm. and that's why safety is so so important to learning. So we need a a different vision guiding policy and guiding the work of education. Definitely. I was in a classroom the other day doing an observation and the teacher, Miss Baca, giving you a shout out from Las Lunas, uh, <laughs> she was engaging the kids in a reading activity, but it was more of a historical lesson. And so they watched a little video and then they, on the screen, it had different vocabulary and she would put the word up and ask them, what do you think that means? And it was a word that was just used in the little video they watched. And Honestly, not a single time did they get it right, right out of the gate. But I loved how beautifully she presented it when they would say, if they said the word was berserking, because they were talking about Vikings. <laughs> and one kid said, you know, oh, when you when you don't have the equipment you need or something, um, you don't have the, the um, swords that you need. And she said, okay, okay, why do you think that? you know, and encouraged them to keep following that train of thought. And then the other students would jump in. Yeah, but no, it's more about because they're going to go to the village and they're going to take over it. And it's like, you're going crazy. And she's like, oh, that's good. Okay. Let's see what they say it means. And she acted almost like she didn't know what it meant, you know, like they they were doing it together. And I thought that was beautiful. It was a very safe way for these kids to venture out and they were all engaging. And this was honestly a class of students who were pulled out of their gen ed class to work on the skill of reading and writing. So I thought it was beautiful because they were so engaged. And I wondered, do they do that in their gen ed classroom? Like, I would love to see that. 
No, that's a great example because <laughs> yeah. what that teacher is also te teaching those kids is you have knowledge, you have information. Let's together figure this out rather than this one right answer. You didn't get it. So be quiet. Now it'll call someone else. <laughs> and I feel like traditional education when I was growing up, we were kind of afraid to raise our hand if we didn't know the right answer because there was a punitive response, right? When I was in third grade, I had a teacher. We all had to go around the room and stand up and read a paragraph out loud to practice our reading skills. And she would come by our desk. And if you made a mistake, she would slam a ruler down on the desk. And that loud noise would always make me like blink my eyes. And it just was scary to me. And I'd go home and my mom would have me read aloud. And my mom was also a teacher, um, a high school teacher. And she saw that every time I was reading that I was like blinking my eyes. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Why are you doing that? So she came to class and observed and watched the teacher do that and literally stood up and grabbed my hand and took me out of the classroom and told that teacher, you have no business teaching kids because she was so upset about how it was impacting me. And I tell you what, to this day, when I try to read out loud, I have to fight having a twitch in my eyes. That's oh, how God. long it has impacted me. And it's just amazing. Like when we give that punitive response, how long it stays with kids, how impactful it is. Yeah, no, it, it's so true. You you know, we use fear as a motivator too often. You know, fear of failure. You know, we tell kids you don't do well, you're gonna you're gonna end up nobody. You're gonna you know you'll 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 be a dropout. And guess what? Fear of failure is not a motivator, especially for kids who have already known a lot of failure in their lives. Mm -hmm. See it around them. You know, hope is a motivator, <laughs> right? So you can use education to improve your life, to help your family. That'll motivate a lot of kids. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about, I want to make sure I caught everything that we really wanted to make sure. Oh, you know, I was going to ask you, when we're looking at technology in schools, when we're looking at access to all of the things that kids need to learn, are you seeing in different parts of our nation places where that's still a problem? Because I'm sure that that exists, but there's been so much funding thrown at us for that. Is that still happening? Are you still seeing students that don't have Wi-Fi, that don't have access to computers or the things they need to learn in a classroom? Yeah, and that's uh, it's still an issue. It, unfortunately, especially in rural areas. I'm sure there are parts of New Mexico, rural New Mexico, where they don't have regular access to the internet or there are people living in overcrowded apartments who have trouble getting online because there are too many people online at one time. So we don't have good infrastructure in many parts of the country, especially rural areas. Even as we, be, we see the benefits of technology, especially because of the pandemic now, but uh, we haven't done enough to ensure it's accessible to everybody. Yeah, I feel like when we all went remote during COVID, there was this huge push and everybody was jumping on board, getting Wi-Fi everywhere and trying to get technology out there. And then... And then once we all kind of went back to school, it's like, eh, we don't really need that anymore. It's okay. Well, students are doing okay. They'll just, they're going to be in person now. They don't need that. And there's just so much access that's needed not in school. And so I feel like that's been dropped a little bit, at least maybe in my area, at least the rural communities around me. Yeah. Where are you, Shannon? I'm in Durango, Colorado. Oh, okay. So you're in Colorado. So just north of the New Mexico border. Which is interesting because I met Shannon when we were working together in Durango and a lot of people really perceive Colorado as a very wealthy state and assume that they have a lot of funding for the state. But there are certain tax laws that are very, very old and antiquated and there's been a lot of push to try and get rid of them, but they haven't left yet. <laughs> but it really limits how much funding goes into the schools. In Colorado, the last time I checked was second to the lowest for the price per student funding. And so educators, I mean, it's very high cost of living in Colorado and pay for educators is very low. I know for me, moving from Colorado into New Mexico at my same, actually a lower place on the pay scale, and I'm making almost $20,000 more 
if that gives you an idea. In New Mexico, then Colorado? In New Mexico, yes. Wow, I'm surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And like, and people are like, what? Are you kidding me? No, for real. It is, that is true. And so I think there are challenges in Colorado that people haven't really thought about, including the fact that there's so many rural areas and with all the mountains and just yeah. the, the way that the landscape is that really interferes and makes it hard to get Wi-Fi. Like in Durango, it's really hard to get Wi-Fi. They've got to go in and, and do all kinds of cabling and stuff to get it because you have all the land structures that block the signals. So there are challenges. Huge challenges. And, you know, I was in Aspen a few years ago, did a, a talk there. And the people who work in Aspen, who make it possible for the wealthy to live there, you know, who clean their houses, who take care of their kids, who work <laughs> in the hotels, can't afford to live there. Oh, we no. knew you were going to say that. In LA, but it's That's just, it. it's so stark there. And then they just vote down affordable housing, even though they know they need those people to for their economy. It's, right. Well, and then the winters come and Aspen's not easily accessible, you know? Yeah. I mean, oh man. Yeah, that's, that is a problem. There, there are several towns in Colorado where they bus in their staff for school, teachers, janitors, people get bussed in from, you know, a town that's out a little and a little more affordable. That Aspen is not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's unfortunate. You really lose your community at that point. Yeah, because yeah. how long a commute do those folks have? You know, and, and what do they do when there's a snowstorm? And which you have yeah. occasionally in Colorado, right? <laughs> uh, from time to time. <laughs> and this last year was a big one. <laughs> they had a lot of those snowstorms. Well, and one of the things when we were talking about resources and technology, I, I just want to be really clear that even though I have a master's degree in instructional design and technology and I geek out on the technology, I don't think that that is necessarily the biggest portion of our solution. I really don't. I think that it's great because through educational technology, we can sort of level the playing field for students who maybe have challenges like second languages because we have built-in translators. We can use text-to-speech for students who maybe have dyslexia or can't read. So there's plenty of things that I think are great about it. I also think that the more, the bigger, more powerful thing is what you're talking about with creating dy dynamic classrooms where kids want to learn. And so whether they're building something out of clay, whether they're piecing puzzles together, I mean, whatever it is, and I think especially when you're really young, those hands-on moments are so powerful for creativity. I think we really need to find that balance between doing things with technology and then doing things that are maybe maker skills or hands-on skills. So I'm not trying to advocate that we do everything technology-wise, but I definitely want to make sure when people need it, they have access to it. And I know that, that our country actually has been trying really hard to get resources out and we just need to find ways to do that better, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I know both states. I've done a lot of work in, 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 I was, last time I was in Colorado was maybe three months ago. It was in Colorado Springs and it was uh -huh. all the superintendents from across the state. And it turned out that one of our graduates got superintendent of the year. She's from a small district right near Colorado Springs, very low income and doing amazing work. And, you know, places like that are proof that when you have good leadership, when they have the right vision, right focus, then issues like poverty and, and, and being a person from a different background does not get in the way of being successful in education. You know, so we have enough examples to know it can be done. And that's the challenge, I think. How do we generate and sustain the will to do this work so that we can make sure every child has access to a good education? Well, we've got an interview coming up with Dr. Posse Salberg, who used to be in Nor or Norway. Finland. I, I know Posse. Finland. Tell us hello. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we will. <laughs> um, he used to be in the Ministry of Education in Finland and really helped with a lot of that reform and then really did a lot of reflection on how that reform happened and, and how it impacted and where maybe some of their mistakes were. But one of the things I really love is that their culture really elevated being a teacher and being an educator and made it possible for people who had that passion to really seek it out and do well for themselves and feel respected. And I, I think 
it's such a travesty that in this country for something that I consider one of the most important jobs, turning small children and young people into the leaders of tomorrow and the citizens of tomorrow, I think that's huge. And I'm so grateful for the wonderful teachers who taught my children. I just wish that we could find a way to microwave this culture's opinion of educators and really get people on board to shift that so that we can really treat them the way they deserve to be treated. No, that's so true. I mean, and, you know, Finland is a, is a place, I mean, they, they do so many things differently and better than we do in education. <laughs> you know, they don't even focus on teaching kids to read until they're eight. Right. Because they believe that the early years should be focused on play, learning through play. And guess what? They all do fine in reading. You know, they're not yeah. stressed about reading. And fin Finnish is not an easy language to learn, okay? <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that because I haven't ever like looked at Finnish, but that's- Oh, it's, it's, I don't, I'm surprised anybody speaks it, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really excited to hear what he has to say now that, I mean, you know, he travels around the world and, and does all kinds of things. So he sees a lot of other cultures. And I mean, America is not the same as Finland. And yeah. I'm sure that, you know, in some ways it's apples to oranges, but in some ways, I I mean, some of those concepts are true no matter the size of the country. You know, you know, we, 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 I think, you know, we would do a lot better if we learned from other countries. What about Canada? You know, I mean, yes. you know, Canada does things better than us. You know, so for example, the highest performing urban district in all of North America is Toronto, right? Oh, wow. When, if a school in Toronto is not doing well, they don't threaten to fire the principal. They send people from the Ministry of Education and say, we see you're struggling. We're here to help you. Wow. <laughs> it's about helping and capacity building, not about threats and pressure. In our district, um, they're really looking and focusing on becoming fully inclusive. And so as part of that shift, they brought in some of the staff from Indiana University, and we got to speak with one of them, Dr. James Robinson. And he was talking about how when they're going around to schools or districts to help them make that switch, you know, how they provide training. And I sat in some of those trainings with my coworkers and listened. And it was interesting to me to see how instantaneous that defensive wall popped up for teachers when they were just talking about, you know, possibilities for ways that we could build in inclusion. And they're like, well, we already do that. We already do that. And it kind of was heartbreaking because I thought, you know, they're defensive like that because they feel like they've been attacked. They feel yeah, like people yeah. are saying you're not doing good enough. They've heard that so much. That oh, that's yeah. I mean, think about it. there's so many politicians that blame teachers, you know, as if as if they don't have responsibility. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. And how do we get the politicians involved in this conversation and and not the lobbyists and not the right. people with all the money, but like politicians to really listen to their constituents and see it's. it's so little... is New Mexico making progress? I haven't, you know, since the pandemic, I haven't been back. So I feel like, yes, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of changes, but more in the, the smaller districts, more in the rural areas. I work in Las Lunas, but there are multiple you know, smaller districts under the 10,000 mark for students around the state. And I feel like it's a little easier to make that big push. And honestly, I look at Albuquerque Public Schools and it's got what, like 12 high schools. I mean, you look at the numbers of that, we should really break it into multiple districts. I feel like we could do a better job that way, but that's just my humble opinion. <laughs> I don't know. But I do see a lot of shift. And I think just the fact that the governor has moved to free college education is huge. Yeah. I think that's huge because there's a lot of families here that are sending their kids that couldn't have otherwise. Well, also what that'll do is hopefully make it, it's that college students will stay in New Mexico. Right, know? yeah. And, and you won't lose all these educated people to other states. That's what happens in Colorado. A lot of educated people leave Colorado. Yeah, and I'm sure that happens in Mississippi and you know a lot of those other states where there's a lot of poverty and people are trying to break out because they haven't heard the message of go back into your own community and strengthen it. I love that's that right. message. That's right. Well, we appreciate so much that you took time to talk to us today. This is a great conversation and I really got a lot out of it. Shannon, do you have any other final questions before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. I really, it kind of, went full circle, we went back to that first point that you made where it was educate the community and you stay in the community, you help your community. So I like that, I appreciate that thought. Well, thank and you. I but hope someday, 
Yeah, I hope someday we're we're our students get to do more travel because I think like you were talking about when you see other cultures, when you see other countries, it helps dispel that belief that oh we're America and we're the best. And that's right. not true and that it doesn't have to be true for us to be proud and we have plenty of room to grow and and we're so lucky to have the resources and the wonderful people in this country. We sh- we need to tap into that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, well, thank uh, you for your time. Well, it's really great talking to both having. of you. And I wish you the best with the both with the podcast, but with your efforts to try to make education better. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's what we want to do. And, and we're two, you know, full-time educators doing this on the side because we just want to see educators be reinvigorated and not leave, but get excited again. And I think it's possible and it's wonderful educators like yourself who are willing to share their insights and advice. And we're hoping to get that out and really encourage people. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. This was such a good interview though. And I loved it because we brought him in because he has a lot of specialty around training educators. He works at USC in as the Dean of the Rossier School of Education, where they train teachers and educators, but also because he's got a lot of expertise on equity and diversity. And I really wanted to make sure we explored that because there's a lot of really good research out there that talks about racial, cultural, socioeconomic, gender, just the different things that are diverse that those students are sort of outliers and struggling in the gen ed classroom. And we want to talk about how to be inclusive around their needs as well. So that's part of why we brought him in. But he had so many other wonderful insights. It was great. It was a really good interview. Yeah. There were a lot of good takeaways, I think. I'm trying to look at my notes right now too get the most out of the interview that I can. I loved that in this interview, he talked to us about some of the states that are doing things a little differently. So he gave us some really specific examples of whether it was standardized testing or the way that they're funding, but just ways that some states have found to do things differently. And I love that he talked about one of the biggest gaps right now is that as educators, we don't have a clear vision of what it would look like to do it differently. And it's really hard to move forward if you don't know what you're moving toward or what you're trying to build. Like you don't build a house without a schema and a plan for what that's gonna look like. And we're trying to rebuild education without giving a vision and a a layout of what that's gonna look like. Yeah, that's a really good point that he had. He also talked a lot about relationship, which is something from season one that has been a theme. And I think that's really true as well. That relationship is so key, not just with teachers and students, but with educators and education agencies and families. Yes, absolutely. Right. So the episode we have coming up is Dr. James James Robinson from Indiana University. And he's going to talk to us because we've been sort of building up to why do we need inclusive practices? Why do we need student-centered practices? And so Dr. Robinson, one of his jobs is to go around to schools and districts and help those schools and districts make that shift. So whether they're going into classrooms and helping teachers or they're doing training across the whole district or working with administrators, he's gonna talk to us about what are some of the key elements and what are some of the main practices that they teach to build inclusive opportunities in a classroom for teachers and for students. So that's what's coming up. And that was a great interview too. It was. All right, well, together Together, we we can can do do better. better. All right, get back here next week and let's start seeing how we're going to make that shift to student-centered inclusive practices. We will see you next time. Bye.